I suggest that we can prove the existence of God from the impossibility of the contrary. As Christians, we do not give up our intellect. The strongest evidence and argument for the existence of God is that without a belief in God, you can't prove anything. How can the law be material? That's the question I'm going to ask you. I would say no. And can you give me an example of anything other than God that's immaterial? Welcome to the Revealed Apologetics Podcast. I'm your host, Elias Ayala, and here at Revealed Apologetics, Our goal is to equip believers to defend the Christian faith, and we want to equip you to do it in a way that is honoring to God and faithful to Scripture. So sit back, relax, get your thinking caps on, and let's dive into our topic for today. Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. It has been a little while since I uh, recorded something. I do apologize. I have been super duper busy. Um, But uh, thank you for those who have been taking the time to listen to the past episodes. Um, I hope they've been informative and theologically and apologetically relevant to you. Um, Just by way of a quick reminder, if you send me me your questions um, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com, I will turn uh, one of my episodes to address your specific question. If it's uh, a really good question, we could spend a lot of time and just jump into some details, um, or we'll just cover it in passing and cover some other topic. Either way, if you want to hear your question answered, you can email me at revealedapologetics at gmail.com. All right, well, uh, just real quick, for those who are tuning in for the first time, Revealed Apologetics is an apologetics podcast. Apologetics is... Uh, the defense of the faith, and uh, I am a Reformed Christian, and I do apologetics from what is known as a presuppositional perspective. Um, And so uh, just kind of throwing that out there so you folks can know where I'm coming from. Now, um, I do believe that apologetics is very much linked with our theology. Apologetics itself is theological in character, and so our method of defending the faith needs to be consistent with our theology with proper biblical theology and of course when we're defending the faith we are defending the faith once for all delivered jude chapter 1 verse 3 what is the faith once for all delivered well it's the content of our theology and so within an apologetics context oftentimes we will find that the objector the unbeliever uh the cultist or whoever is going to be attacking some um aspect of the christian faith and so the average Christian needs to be sufficiently educated in what um, what we are to believe um, as Christians. And so uh, keeping that in mind, um, today I want to focus on a specific thing that is often attacked 
um, by unbelievers or cultists, generally cultists who deny uh, important things that are inherent within the Christian faith, one of which is the doctrine of the Trinity. So today we're going to be covering the topic of the doctrine of the Trinity. What is it? How is the doctrine uh, derived? Um, how do we biblically support it? All these sorts of things. This is vitally important and has wide application. For example, the cults uh, tend to deny the doctrine of the Trinity. The Jehovah's Witness deny the Trinity, deny the deity of Christ. Uh, the Mormons uh, affirm the Trinity in the sense that they believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it's not really the Trinity. It's really a form of tritheism, namely the view that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three separate gods. And so Mormons are polytheists. They believe in more than one God, okay? So you're going to have to defend the Trinity from a wide range of, of, of objectors and positions that deny the uh, the biblical position of the Trinity, okay? So uh, you'll also hear attacks from Muslims. Muslims will deny the deity of Christ. Jesus is only a prophet. Um, and so when we're debating Muslims and engaging Muslims in, in conversation and, and just within the evangelistic and apologetic context, we're going to really need to know how to defend uh, the doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Christ, which are they're very much linked together. All right. So this particular episode is going to be really, really important um, because the doctrine of the Trinity is important. We're touching on the very nature and essence of the God who has revealed himself in Scripture. OK, so with that uh, introductory um, information out of the way, what is the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity, quite simply, is this. It is the idea that God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. Okay, I'm going to say that again. The Trinity is the idea that God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. That is the definition of the Trinity. Now, for those who might be confused just by the bare definition, I want to emphasize this is super, super important. Uh, give me one second here. I got to step away from my mic. All right. Okay. Sorry about that. This is super, super duper important that the doctrine of the Trinity is monotheistic through and through. Okay. Christians do not worship many gods, one God called the Father, another God called the Son, and another God called the Holy Spirit, okay? If anyone attacks the Trinity and objects to the Trinity on the grounds that it teaches some form of polytheism, shows and demonstrates that the person does not understand what the doctrine is, okay? We believe as Christians, as Trinitarians, that there is only one God. We are monotheists, and don't let anyone... Uh, you know, say otherwise, this is the Christian position, okay? And so it's very, very important to understand that we are teaching there is only one God in all of existence, okay? We uh, make a very clear distinction between the being of God and the persons of God, okay? God is, in essence, one what and three who's. One what and three who's. The whatness of God pertains to his being. God is one being, the Trinity is not the idea that there are three beings who are God. That would be polytheism. We believe that God is one being who exists as three persons. The persons of God, the tri-personality the tri of God, refers to the who-ness of God. 
and the being of God refers to the whatness of God. Okay? There is one being who exists as three persons. And the three persons are not three beings. All right? So there's a very important distinction in that concept. Okay? And so we need to keep those distinctions in mind since we want to affirm and speak of consistently um, the monotheistic nature of the view of the Trinity. Okay? Very, very important. Now, you do get some common objections to the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, there are those who think that the doctrine of the Trinity is merely a philosophical construct that's overlaid um, over the scriptures. And so you'll hear um, just kind of in, at the popular level, um, and I want to keep it at the popular level. I don't want to go too much over folks' heads. Um, but you might hear the, the objection, well, if the, if the doctrine of the Trinity is biblical, then why doesn't the word Trinity appear in scripture? Okay. And to uh, a Christian who's just starting off with theology and things like that, that might take them back and be like, well, that's, that's, I guess that's right. I've never really actually seen the word Trinity in the Bible. Now, that it's true. The word Trinity does not appear in the Bible. Okay, So if you, if you want to say the Trinity is unbiblical, I suppose it's unbiblical if you mean that the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible. But that's not really the issue at hand here. Um, it's true that the Bible teaches that there is only one God. Yet the word monotheism doesn't appear in the Bible. Okay, the the important thing to remember is not that if the word appears in the Bible. I think the important issue is if the concept is taught in Scripture. That is a huge, huge distinction to keep in mind. And of course, we believe that the idea, the concept of there being only one God in all of existence, is who's the creator of all things. That idea is clearly uh, biblical. Okay. So um, keeping that in mind, super, super important. Okay, so there's a very, very important distinction there that we need to keep in mind. So, so remember that, not that the word appears there, but that the concept is taught in the Bible. Okay, um, what about this issue of, of how is the doctrine of the Trinity arrived at? How do we actually get to the doctrine of the Trinity? Because there are a lot of people who um, will kind of uh, not have a clear understanding of the, the development of doctrine, the history of, of Christianity, and this issue with the councils and what were what was decided at this point in history and that point of history. Uh, many people would say that the Bible uh, doesn't teach the Trinity. Rather, the doctrine of the Trinity was arrived at at later councils, and this idea was kind of read back into uh, the Bible, and so therefore it's not a biblical position. Okay, uh, That's why it's very important to kind of know how uh, certain theological concepts are derived and how they developed over time. Well, first, uh, in regards to the Trinity, there is not one verse in the Bible that summarizes the doctrine of the Trinity. So if someone were to say, give me one verse in the Bible that teaches the Trinity, well, you're asking the wrong question. Christians never claim that one verse summarizes the entire doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, The doctrine of the Trinity is arrived at systematically and by considering all of what Scripture has to say. Okay, the doctrine of the Trinity is um, systematic in that sense. And this is very important, especially when speaking with, with Muslims, um, because Muslims will often um, uh, point to certain passages that speak about the oneness of God. Okay, and of course, uh, we believe those passages. You know, it does, it does no, no good for a Muslim or a Unitarian or something like that to point out that the Bible clearly teaches that there's only one God. So clearly, the Trinity is wrong. Well, of course, we, we do believe. As I've mentioned before, Trinitarians are monotheistic. So we affirm all of those verses that speak of the oneness of God wholeheartedly. Um, that's kind of an essential feature as, as of Orthodox Christianity. Okay, so what we do is consider all of what Scripture 
has to say. And of course, the scriptures has much more to say than just the Lord, you know, the Lord, Lord is one, right? Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 6, 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. When you have those passages in Isaiah uh, where it speaks of, you know, there is none beside me and things like that. We affirm all of those passages, okay? But we also affirm all of what scripture says, and we do not want to overemphasize one set of scriptures and set them in isolation to other sets of scriptures that provide a more balanced look as to what is being revealed therein. Okay, uh, people say, well, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity is not something in scripture, but rather is a progressive uh, doctrine. It progressed over time. Uh, sure. Okay. Uh, the language we use to describe the Trinity is part of the progression. As the church gets a clearer understanding of what? The biblical data. That's important. All right. So the concept is clearly taught in the Bible, and that's what we as Trinitarians argue for. But the language with which we clarify and explain the doctrine, sure, that that developed over time. There's no problem with that. The idea, though, is is the concept biblical. That's very, very important. And of course, we have multiple examples of uh, the Trinity uh, expressed, this idea of one God three persons. Um, take a look at the Old Testament. I would say that the Old Testament does not fully reveal the doctrine of the Trinity. However, there are little bits and pieces and see in seed form a concept of a sort of plurality within the one God. Okay. Uh, a nice famous passage, Genesis 126. God said, let us make man in our image. Okay. Now before people hoot and holler and say, well, that one doesn't count. Uh, there has been an interesting, uh, objection to, to this, claiming that there um, was often in the ancient world the use of what's called the royal plural. And so royalty would often refer to themselves in third person, and so perhaps this is what's going on here. And while it's true that there is something called the royal plural, I think that's what it's called, um, you don't find this within the scriptures. Um, you know, King David, for example, didn't speak of himself in third person, uh, and neither does any other uh, king in the Bible to my knowledge. Okay, This wasn't something that was prevalent within the Jewish context, and so that wouldn't apply to the Hebrew scriptures. Okay, It's very interesting. Moses, writing Genesis, believes in one God, um, yet God is referring, uh, it refers to himself in the plural. Let us make man in our image. You have another interesting passage as well in Psalm 45, uh, verse 6 through 7. Your throne, O God, um, lasts forever and ever. Uh, you, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with oil of joy. That's an interesting uh, passage right there. Um, another interesting passage that I think is quite fascinating, and a lot of people don't realize this passage actually has any application to this idea of plurality within the one God, is the book of Amos, chapter 4, verses 10 through 11. Amos, chapter 4, verses 10 through 11. Again, not a full-blown doctrine of the Trinity, but you have this interesting thing where there seems to be plurality going on. Okay, check this out. Now, just give a quick context here. Amos, chapter 4, verse 10 through 11, God is speaking. Okay, God is speaking. And look at what the Lord says. He says, I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses, and I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I, remember God speaking, I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Now that, that's a very interesting scriptural passage there that I think uh, gives us in seed form this idea of perhaps a plurality within the Godhead. Okay, 
Um, and again, uh, quoting these passages, we affirm uh, verses like Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Okay. Trinitarians affirm that. We affirm Isaiah 44, 6. We affirm uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4. We affirm all of those monotheistic passages, but we believe all of the scriptures. And so we also affirm verses like Amos 4, 10 through 11, uh, Genesis 126, Psalm 45, 6 through 7, and all of the New Testament passages which speak of the deity of Christ. Um, in the writings of Paul and in the Gospels uh, and what Jesus said about himself, we affirm all those things. And so we take all those things together systematically, and that is how the doctrine of the Trinity is derived. It's based off principles in Scripture itself. Okay, And so um, I think the Trinitarian position uh, really treats responsibly the wide variety of texts that speak in regards to the nature of God. So, right? so the Trinity is systematically arrived at. Yep. There's one God, yet there are three persons called God. The Son is called God, John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, 14, the Word became flesh, and so that Word who uh, was with God and is himself God um, is Jesus Christ, of course, we learn from the rest of the Gospel of John, okay? Also, we have uh, Colossians 2, 9, which I think is a, is a very important verse in this regard. Colossians 2.9 says the following. Um, it says, For in him, this is in reference to Christ, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and you have been filled in him who is the head and rule and all authority, etc., etc. Okay? In him the fullness of deity dwell. And so Jesus Christ is called God. Uh, in Titus, um, he's also referred to as our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay? And of course, the Father is called God. 1 Peter 1.2 Philippians 1-2. Let's read one of those passages here. Usually this is not a debated point, but it's important. Okay, so 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Okay, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Okay, so the Father is called God, the Son is called God, and then we have instances in Scripture where the Holy Spirit is called God, all right? This is contrary to, say, uh, you know, the Jehovah's Witness position, which treat the, the, the Holy Spirit as an impersonal force. Um, the Bible does not refer to uh, the Holy Spirit as an impersonal force. Rather, he is described with personal pronouns. He, right? He can be grieved. He can be lied to, okay? Acts chapter 5, verse 3 through 4 says the following. But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Remember, you can't lie to a force. You can only lie to persons. And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it, at your, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. All right, so the Holy Spirit is referred to as God. So the Son is called God. The Father is called God. The Spirit is called God, yet we read uh, in Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. All right, so how do you bring all of these things together? When you bring them together, what do you get? Well, you get the doctrine of the Trinity, okay? Um, also, just a, a quick word here. Um, the Trinity uh, also teaches that each person of the Trinity, 
um, are co-equal with each other and co-eternal. The Son does not begin to exist. The Son is eternal. The Father is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. There is, within the doctrine of the Trinity, the idea that the three persons of the Trinity have existed for all of eternity and have been in an inter-Trinitarian love relationship. Okay? And this is very, very important. The Father always existed. The Son always existed. The Holy Spirit always existed. They all share the attributes of deity. The Father is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. The Son is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. The Holy Spirit is omniscient, omnipresent, and uh, what was the other one again? Uh, you get the point, right? They share all of the same attributes, right? Very, very important. Uh, just real quick, and some important um, philosophical terminology to, to keep in mind. When we explore the doctrine of the Trinity, we make a distinction between two ways of looking at the doctrine of the Trinity, right? We, um, in one sense, uh, refer to the ontological Trinity, okay? There's that thousand-dollar uh, word, right? <laughs> and then we have what's called the economic Trinity, all right? So what, what, what is up with these, this fancy terminology? Well, the ontological Trinity refers to the being of the triune God. So when we use the word ontological, we're referring to the ontos, to the being of God. And so if I were to ask you, and if you're a Christian and you know your theology, you, you already know what the ontological trinity is, even if you are not familiar with this terminology. The ontological trinity is just referring to the nature of the triune God. If I were to ask you, what is the ontological trinity? You're going to say, well, the ontological trinity is the idea that God is one being who exists as three persons, right? You've just explained to me the ontos of the triune God who's revealed himself in scripture. Now, the economic trinity has nothing to do with money or the economy in that sense, okay? The economic trinity actually refers to the functions of each person, the jobs that they perform, okay? While they are equal in all things in regards to their attributes and nature, they do not do exactly the same things, right? For example, it's the father who sends the son. The son doesn't send the father, and the son takes on a human nature, Right? John 1, 1, John 1, 14, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. That's speaking of the Son, not the Father. So the Father doesn't take on flesh. The Son takes on flesh. Okay? And the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. The Holy Spirit does various things uh, that the, the Son and the Father don't necessarily do. Okay? So within the economy of the Trinity, they perform different tasks, although in regards to their attributes and nature, they share the same being okay so that's the difference between the ontological trinity and the economic trinity very very important distinctions there now let's take a look at some things okay uh that kind of throw a monkey wrench into all of this okay and i think it's important to to recognize okay i just finished saying that the trinity is the idea that there is one being who is god and this one being um, it, it reveals himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're co-eternal, co-substantial. They share the nature and the attributes, yada, yada, yada. Okay? But what do we do then when we see things like Jesus in John 14, 28 say something to this effect? The Father is greater than I. Okay? Jesus said that. The Father is greater than I. Now, how can I affirm this if, I, if, everything, if what everything I just said about the Trinity is true? If the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are, are equally God and share the same attributes, then the Father can't be greater than the Son. The Son can't be greater than the Father and vice versa and the Holy Spirit as well. And how do we make sense out of this? Well, again, this is going to be relate, related to another extended doctrine that kind of extends to this, which is the deity of Jesus Christ. When we say that God is one being who exists as three persons, the doctrine of the deity of Christ, um, which is related to a big old fancy term, uh, theological term, the hypostatic union, 
refers to Jesus Christ as one person with two natures. Remember, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He has a divine nature, and when he took on human flesh, he took on a human nature. So Jesus is one person with two natures. Okay, it's very important to understand that because in regards to the nature of the second person of the Trinity, he's completely equal with the Father. The Father is not greater than the Son in regards to their nature and attributes. Rather, the greater than the Son refers to uh, the role, not the nature. Okay, and that's very, very important. Okay, for example, that's why it's important to make the distinction between the ontological trinity and the economic trinity. The ontological trinity, when we take a look at the nature of God, the Father and the Son are equal, and the Holy Spirit as well. But in regards to their economy, their roles, well, the Son submits to the Father. There's a, there's a hierarchy there in regards to what they actually do. Okay, so the, in the sense that we say that the, the Father is greater than the Son, we're speaking in terms of his role and his humanity. And Jesus speaking as a man in regards to his human nature, yeah, the Father is greater than he is. But in regards to his divine nature, that's not the case. You have kind of these two sets of scripture in the, old, in the New Testament, rather, in which Jesus is described either along the lines of his human nature um, and along the lines of his divine nature. And you need to be able to make those distinctions and make those clarifications. It's very, very important. On the one hand, Jesus grew tired, yet God doesn't get tired, right? So if you were to say, for example, Jesus is God, yes. Does God get tired? No. Did Jesus get tired? Yes. Therefore, Jesus isn't God. You know, <laughs> that, that sounds like, you know, oh, man, how do I get out of that? Well, uh, there's no need to get out of anything. It's just really based upon having a clear understanding of what the Bible teaches in regards to Jesus Christ as the God-man. Okay? Jesus is God in flesh. Okay? This is what the Bible teaches. But he also took on a human nature and for a little while was made lower than the angels and functioned within the weaknesses of his humanity. Okay? And so we, we need to keep that idea in mind. Okay, so the Father is greater than the Son in role, but not in nature, since in their nature they are equal. Okay, that's very, very important. All right, so if you're in an apologetics context and that question comes up, is the Father greater than the Son? Um, we can say in a sense he is, and in a sense he's not, and then explain our theology. And at that point, you may have to do a little bit of teaching because this concept is easily uh, uh, misunderstood. And of course, that's why it's important that we understand our theology as well. Okay. All right, well, here's another one. If Jesus is God, then who is he praying to? Okay, that's another thing, you know, kind of an attempted, an attempt at kind of a reductio ad absurdum. You know, the Trinity and the deity of Christ, these ideas are kind of silly, and so you're going you're to have Jesus as God, but then Jesus prays to God, and so is Jesus praying to himself? Uh, well, you know, uh, what's going on there, okay? In Matthew 26, verse 39, it says, Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus prayed, okay? First of all, why did Jesus pray? Why did Jesus pray if he's God? Well, again, Galatians 4, 4, he was made under the law, okay? He was made under the law. As a man, he submitted to the law of God, which included prayer and a whole bunch of other things, going into the temple, participating in various things that the Jews had to participate in um, via the fact that they were Jews under the law. So Jesus submitted himself to the law and then obeyed the law perfectly. Okay, First Peter 2.22, he was without sin. And it's because he was without sin, he can be that perfect sacrifice that bears our sins in his body on the cross, First Peter 2.24. Okay, so these ideas are super duper important. If Jesus is God, who is he praying to? 
The answer to that question is going to be based upon a clear understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the hypostatic union, understanding that Jesus is one person with two natures. Okay, so in a quick, succinct answer, if Jesus is God, who is he praying to? A good answer would be that the person of the Son was praying to the person of the Father. Okay, so you need to have that Trinitarian context out of which we can make sense out of passages like that. Okay, um, Here's another uh, interesting question that I think is relevant to, to this sort of stuff. I, I watched the video a while back, and I think uh, Dr. James White, another Christian apologist, uh, covered this, but I'll cover it briefly here. Uh, there was a, um, a Muslim, uh, well, a bunch of Muslims uh, going around the streets of, of London uh, practicing dawah. Um, you know, they're, they're evangelizing, doing some Muslim apologetics and things like that. And uh, they were interviewing uh, Christians on the street. And they were asking various questions, and um, I think they were good questions. I think they're questions one should ask if, <laughs> if they take issue with the Christian uh, conception of God and the deity of Christ and things like that. But if you were confronted by a Muslim on the street and uh, you were to be asked this question, how would you answer? Here was the question that seemed to trip people up. The question was, is Jesus God or was Jesus sent by God? Is Jesus God or was Jesus sent by God? And of course, the average person in the street who does not really reflect upon their own theology and belief, uh, there's going to be all sorts of muddling and backpedaling and, you know, a conflation of terms and concepts and things like that. And so, again, this kind of is going to reinforce the importance of really just knowing your theology. How would you answer that question? Is Jesus God or was Jesus sent by God? Okay, I think the answer is really clear once we know that Trinitarian background. Okay, most Muslims, by the way, don't have a clear understanding of the Trinity. Okay, so the answer to the question is Jesus God or was Jesus sent by God? The answer is both. Okay, now someone can say, well, wait a minute, Jesus is God and He was sent by God. How does that work? Isn't that a contradiction? Well, no. Now remember, if you know your laws of logic, there are three laws of logic first law of logic is the law of identity. Something is what it is, and it's not what it's not. A rock is a rock. It's not a cat. A cat is a cat. It's not a ball. Okay? Things have identity about them. The second law of logic is the law of non-contradiction. A statement cannot be both true and false at the same time and in the same way. And then, of course, the law of excluded middle. A statement is either true or false. You don't have like a middle option there. Okay? So when someone claims that uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is a contradiction, what they're claiming, in essence, is that the idea of the Trinity is violating the second law of logic. Um, but is that the case? If the second law of logic states that a statement cannot be both true and false at the same time and in the same sense, when we say Jesus is God and was sent by God, um, are we using different senses here, or, are, or is this a blatant contradiction? Well, of course, obviously, if you know the Christian position, there is a sense in which Jesus is God, and there is a sense in which he was sent by God. And those senses must be explained via the context of the doctrine of the Trinity. God is a trinity. I would turn the question back onto the Muslim and ask him politely, do you know what Christians believe about the Trinity? Okay, and then kind of walk walk the person through that, you know, if and then when they explain it and if they are they explain it incorrectly, you correct them. Right. And if they explain it correctly, then bring them along the, your line of reasoning. Well, if God is this way, then this is how, you know, we would answer this question. This is why we answer the question the way that we do. Okay, so is Jesus God or was Jesus sent by God? The answer is both. God is a trinity. So the person of the Father sent the person of the Son. 
and the second person of the Trinity took on human nature. Okay? Is that a contradiction? No, it's not. As I said before, in one sense, Jesus is God, is the second person of the Trinity. And in another sense, Jesus is sent by God. Namely, he was sent by God the Father. Now, when I say Jesus is God and the Father is God, I'm not conflating the persons. And nor am I saying that when Jesus is God, Jesus is the Trinity. Or when I say the Father is God, the Father is the Trinity. That's not what I'm saying. Okay? If you understand the doctrine of the Trinity and how we define it, we know that's not what we are actually saying. All right? So, um, again... Uh, these are super, super important. The idea of the Trinity not only is very enriching and encouraging and uh, awe-inspiring for the Christian to just learn about just as a Christian um, for his own edification, but I think it is also very important in, in regards to apologetics that we understand what the doctrine of the Trinity is and be able to teach and correct when uh, folks uh, present arguments against the doctrine of the Trinity, which which is a view that is thoroughly, thoroughly monotheistic and thoroughly, thoroughly biblical. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. If you have any questions, once again, please email me at revealedapologetics at gmail.com. All right. And you can look me up on Facebook and also uh, the Historical Bible Society is a, an organization that I also work for and I do some apologetics blogs for them. You can check out historicalbiblesociety.org. On the top right, there's a drop down menu, Take 10. We do a blog called 10 Minute Apologetics, where we provide uh, short articles that answer people's questions. Um, but you can look up Revealed Apologetics, which is my apologetics ministry on Facebook, and I make videos and things like that. Uh, you can check out there. I'm also a traveling speaker. If you want me to come to your church or an event or a conference um, to teach on apologetics and go through perhaps workshops and talks as to how we are to defend the faith and do so effectively, uh, you can contact me via my email as well, um, and we can set that up. All right. Well, I hope this, is, this has been proven helpful and edifying. And uh, that's, that's all I got for today. Take care and God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to the Revealed Apologetics podcast. Uh, if you have any questions um, that you would like me to cover in a podcast episode, uh, please email them to me to revealedapologetics at gmail.com. Also, we very much um, appreciate your prayers, and if you wish to support Revealed Apologetics financially, uh, you can by doing so. Um, we have a, a PayPal account set up. Uh, you can um, uh, help us out financially um, at paypal.me slash revealedapologetics, paypal.me slash revealedapologetics, and that would be uh, greatly appreciated if, if you were able to help out financially. If not, um, we, we definitely would appreciate uh, prayer. Um, and um, once again, if, if you have any questions uh, that you'd like me to cover, revealedapologetics at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and God bless.